Listen. Just listen. I'm Serendipity Theater Collective Company member Rick Walker, and you're listening to Second Story Podcast. Second Story is Serendipity Theater Collective's festival of stories, wine, and music, a collaboration among writers, actors, musicians, and others to create good stories and good times. The stories are written by the performers themselves, sometimes funny, sometimes poignant, always thought-provoking. And for now, the wine that you are drinking is a Renninger 2004 Helix. It's from Columbia Valley in Washington. All right, this medium-bodied Bordeaux blend is cut with a dose of Syrah, one of Washington's star varietals, and shows a really cheerful, supple juiciness throughout, along with a note of smoke. Imagine one of those purple lollipops you liked as a kid, but this time with bacon. <laughs> lollipops and bacon, awesome. Please welcome our next storyteller, Matt Miller. When I told my sister that I was going to write a story about Mark Fox, a boy we had both grown up with in Ohio, I watched as the memory of Mark, long since dormant in her brain, quickly re-entrenched itself in her consciousness, moved swiftly down her face, narrowed her eyes, turned down the corners of her mouth, and finally compelled her to say in a solemn, sober voice, I really wish you wouldn't. Such is the memory of Mark Fox. I like to believe that people are born good, that humanity distinguishes itself from the rest of the animal kingdom by our capacity for goodness and generosity and love. But when you know a man like Mark, there are some things about the world that you have to reconsider. When I met Mark Fox, I was in sixth grade, 12 years old. I was lanky and awkward with thick glasses and a newly discovered interest in baseball cards, girls, and hair gel in precisely that order. <laughs> My family had just moved across town and our new house was less than a half mile from Mark's house. I would ride the bus to school with Mark for almost the next six years. Mark was two years older than me, but in the fall of 1986, he was just starting seventh grade. I would later learn from eavesdropping on my mother's telephone calls with the gossipy secretary at the elementary school that Mark had been pushed up to the junior high even though he had missed a considerable amount of time in sixth grade from suspensions and weeks in juvenile detention. But the staff and administration didn't want another year of Mark's kind of trouble. And so they moved him up to the junior high, a case of gross social promotion if ever there was one. Mark was the adopted son of Mr. and Mrs. Thomas Fox. Read into that what you will. They had an older daughter, Maggie, who was quiet and sweet, and they had adopted Mark when he was very young. Mr. Fox was the vice principal at the high school, a fact that always makes me sad now whenever I think about it, based on the damage that Mark must have surely done to his father's career and reputation. Mark was a handsome kid, wiry and surprisingly strong, with stringy brown hair, he was not without charm. His penchant for old army fatigues and tie-dyed shirts made him look like an aspiring hippie, with one notable exception. The most salient feature of Mark's appearance were his eyes. They belied his otherwise benign slacker look. Mark had intense, feral eyes, so dark brown in color that there was barely a distinction between his iris and the black of his retina. As a result, they appeared hollow, bottomless. 
Mark's eyes were almost always glazed over from pot or pills or something worse. But the overwhelming quality of his eyes was that of wildness. Looking directly into Mark's eyes was an exercise in bravery. I remember quite distinctly flipping through my new history textbook in Mr. Amrine's seventh grade American history class and happening upon a picture of a man who had the same eyes as Mark. It was shocking to me because I'd never seen anyone else with eyes like his, and they were identical to the man in the textbook. I read a little bit more about this man and quickly closed the book when it began to describe what this man and his followers had done to a woman named Sharon Tate. True story. In East of Eden, John Steinbeck describes the character of Kathy Ames as being a monster, someone born without kindness, without the potential of conscience, someone to whom honesty is foolish. That was seemingly Mark's lot as well. I cannot adequately describe the sort of power Mark had over my neighborhood growing up. Suffice to say, it was very real. It started with stealing, a rash of petty thefts around the neighborhood. My dad had his briefcase stolen out of the car. We could never prove it, but my sister and I both knew it was Mark. Later that year, I would watch from afar as Mark and his hangers-on would torture animals at the lake near our house. They would whoop as Mark chopped the heads off turtles and crammed lit fireworks inside a fish he had caught. When our elderly neighbor's cat disappeared one week, a small group of neighbors and kids walked the roads near her house to try and find it. Two days later, someone left the cat's head on the lady's front porch. Everyone knew it was Mark, proving it was all. When a Middle Eastern family moved into our neighborhood, our morning bus rides became rant sessions where Mark railed against foreigners and black people and the merits of the KKK. When a poorly lit cross appeared in the front of this family's house early one morning, the police made an obligatory visit, but no charges were filed. Still, everyone knew it was Mark. Occasionally, Mark did get caught, and he would often disappear for weeks at a time. He did a stint at a military camp and lots of time in juvenile detention. If anything, these attempts at reforming Mark only made him angrier. There would be no changing Mark Fox. In high school, Mark got into drugs pretty seriously. It lessened his rage, but made him far more desperate for money. At one point in his freshman year, he brought a gun to school to sell. This was before the time when something like that would get you expelled or worse. Mark only got suspended for a week. Mark also had a girlfriend for a while named Leah who kind of mellowed him out a bit. When they broke up though, Mark told the whole boss about how he had stolen a small piece of radium from the science department a few months ago and had made a necklace out of it for Leah as a present. If she wore it long enough, he said, all of her hair would fall out from the radiation. But now that they had broken up, he was pretty sure she wouldn't wear it anymore. Just because Mark liked someone did not make that person exempt from his cruelty. Now, Mark was unfortunately not the only bully I encountered in high school. The other bully I had the pleasure of knowing was Donnie White, which is really an exquisite name for a bully. Donnie White. The name itself has a kind of musicality to it that just says, hey, I'm a big dumb asshole. <laughs> Whereas Mark was cruel and dangerous, Donnie was on the other side of the bully spectrum. Donnie was the kind of bully you might expect to find in an Archie comic book. A big 300 pound galoot of a kid with bad teeth and a bad haircut. Donnie was the center for the varsity football team and every cliche that can be attributed to high school football players of this ilk can be applied here. The overwhelming quality of Donnie's aura was that of both physical and mental thickness. Like, if you were to slice Donnie in half, 
Instead of guts and arteries, you would just find thickness. No brain, no liver, no discernible organs, just a shell of a human body filled with a thick tapioca-colored goop that could somehow walk and talk and hit people. My one good Donnie story took place in chemistry class my sophomore year of high school. Please note, this was sophomore chemistry and Donnie was a senior. In a moment of truly poor judgment, I made the unconscionable decision to pick up Donnie's books from the floor in front of my desk where they were being stepped on and move them to the relative safety of his desk chair. Don't ever touch my books, you dickwad. And with that warning, Donnie smashed my head against the back of the classroom wall and then shoved me hard enough that I fell backward onto my desk, sending my papers and folders skittering across the floor. After that day, I steered clear of Donnie White, and that pretty much did the trick. Unfortunately, that tactic didn't work as well with Mark. With Donnie, there was a basic sense of cause and effect at work, the logic being that this kid seemingly messed with my stuff, so now I'm going to hit him. With Mark, though, there was no such thing. No rhyme, no reason to his actions. Mark seemingly did bad things for the sake of doing bad things. And no one who grew up with Mark was spared. Every kid in the neighborhood had had their own violent brush with Mark. I will never forget that day when Mark calmly and quietly cornered me in the back of the bus where I was quietly reading and proceeded to lash me across the face with a leather work glove until I cried, my tears somehow satiating him. Perhaps, though, the most singular display of cruelty I have ever witnessed took place on a bright spring afternoon my freshman year in high school. It was after school, and a group of about 50 kids were milling around the front of the school waiting for some late buses. I was there, and a few kids I knew from the neighborhood, and Alex was there. Alex was in the special education program at my high school. He was a tall redhead with thick Coke bottle glasses. He had Down syndrome, and the accompanying motor skill and speech impairments that often go with it. He was a happy enough kid, though, who seemed to be blissfully unaware of the retard jokes that were routinely made about him in his presence. And, of course, Mark was there. Mark thought Alex was hilarious, and Alex loved the attention that Mark gave him. One of Mark's favorite games was to get Alex to shout pornographic phrases in his awkward, stumbling lisp for the amusement of all the other assholes that hung around Mark and envied his power. On this particular afternoon, Mark was laid back, seemingly possessed of a casual wickedness. He put his arm around Alex and cooed to him in a warm voice. Hey, say like pussy farts, buddy. I like pussy farts, Alex yelled. Laughter. Say, say you like sucking dick, Alex. Say, say I like to suck dick. I like to suck dick, Alex cried. More laughter. Alex was beaming. And then Alex asked Mark for some money to buy a Mountain Dew out of the vending machine nearby. Can I have a quarter, Mark? Do you have a quarter, Mark? Alex stumbled. Mark's eyes twinkled. Back up, he said, and coaxed Alex into the middle of the paved commons area outside the front door of the school's atrium. I have some money for you, Alex, but you have to catch it. And with that, Mark withdrew a handful of change from his pockets. He tested the weight of a nickel in his right palm like you gauge the weight of a stone or a ball. And then he threw the coin at Alex's chest as hard as he could. What happened next was this surreal Lord of the Flies-like moment. While Alex was bending over to pick up the nickel that had bounced off his chest, Mark savagely whipped another at Alex's back. Alex excitedly turned around, 
a huge smile on his face, delighted with his luck. Then Hayes, Mark's best friend, threw a quarter at Alex that hit him in the side of the face. Far from upset, Alex crawled after the quarter on all fours, laughing. Mark began throwing coins rapid fire, and soon other boys were throwing coins as well. Donnie White was one of them. A circle formed with Alex in the middle, on all fours, scrambling to pick up the coins as fast as he could. And I watched from a distance, immobile, frightened as the crowd grew. I could see red welts developing on Alex's skin from the force of the coins hitting him. Looking around that circle, though, I became acutely aware of the infectious, tantalizing power Mark possessed. Not only was Mark himself capable of such evil, but he seemed to have the ability to draw out the evil dormant in others. I watched as my friend Chris threw a handful of pennies at Alex. And then a kid I went to Bible study through his change. And for a few brief moments, I fingered the loose change in my own pocket. The energy in the air was thick and wild, seductive, primal. And then the very center of it all was Mark Fox. No one broke up the melee. The buses finally pulled in and the attackers peeled away to get on board. I watched from a short distance as Alex, still smiling as he kneeled on the ground, scooped up the change into the fold of his t-shirt. As Mark got onto the bus, he called back to Alex, Hey buddy, you're a rich retard now. Yes, said Alex. I'm rich. I'm rich. I'm rich. It's been almost 20 years now since that day, and I'm compelled to wonder what happens to the bullies of our youth. Now, I am absolutely sure that Donnie White got his comeuppets at some point down the road. I like to think that he somehow found his way onto Jeopardy, where his appalling lack of knowledge of the periodic table cost him hundreds of thousands of dollars in Final Jeopardy, and Alex Trebek then made fun of him in that prissy, dismissive, arrogant, backhanded Alex Trebek kind of way and that Donnie was basically shamed in front of a national audience. But that daydream presupposes the fact that Donnie learned how to read, and I'm pretty sure he graduated more or less illiterate. As for Mark, I don't have to wonder. I know what happened to him. About five years ago, my mother sent me a clipping from our local paper in Ohio. The headline read, Fox found guilty of murder. In the dead of night, in some back street of Akron, Ohio, Mark Fox had beaten a man to death with a metal flashlight over a drug deal gone bad. He's serving a life sentence in a maximum security facility in Ohio. They had a picture of the flashlight Mark had used in the article. It was not one of those big, long-handled flashlights you sometimes see policemen carrying around. It was normal-sized, made of silver metal, probably took two C batteries, and Mark had killed a man with it. I cannot say that I was surprised by the news. I thought about writing Mark in prison to tell him about this story, to see if he remembers the things he did as a young man, to ask him if his time in prison has changed him. But I didn't. Because the truth is, I don't want Mark to ever remember who I am.
Story Podcast is brought to you by Amanda Delheimer, Megan Steelstra, Christopher Jobson, Miles Pulaski, Mikhail Pixel, and me, Rick Walker. To find out more about Second Story, the performances, and our performers, visit us at storiesandwine.com.